if you heard uh, one last child crying and throwing a fit just at the end of that video there, uh, that was mine. That was my child as my wife took her out. All the other babies so well behaved. But my child is a good and imperfect gift from the Lord. Um, Listen, we have a really critical question that faces us this morning in our series entitled The B-I-B-L-E. And it's a critical question because we live in a world uh, that is kind of saturated with fake news. Have you heard of the fake news before? And we read online and, you know, especially on Facebook. I just think that Facebook is like a platform for morons, to be honest with you. Like, that's what I think about Facebook. You can love Facebook if you want to. That's awesome. But it gives us an opportunity just to, like, report all this stuff that's not actually true and post this stuff that's not actually true. Please do your fact-checking before you do that, by the way. Uh, and, and the reason why I just bring that up is because we live in a world where we're not sure what is or isn't true, where facts are skewed, uh, where statistics are skewed and they're leveraged for someone's opinion, whether it is true or not true. And there is a lot of confusion. If you've watched the news even recently in a pretty famous trials, there's all sorts of conversations about truth and who or what we can trust. And so the question before us this morning is simply this, can I trust the B-I-B-L-E? Can I trust it? This is a really critical question, not just for the church, but for culture at large. So critical, in fact, that Time Magazine has actually had two covers, uh, one of which is up here on the screen. I'll show you the other one in a minute. Is the Bible fact or fiction? What are they asking? Can I trust the Bible, right? Uh, Next cover is up here. Is the Bible true or how true is the Bible? Which is so funny to me. This is just ironic because does everybody know who these people are? Who are those Who are those guys? So three wise men, right? Three wise men. The Gospels don't say that they were three. The Gospels just said that there were some visiting from a far-off country, likely in a caravan, but possibly even hundreds of them who came to worship the risen Christ. But Time Magazine asked the question, how true is the Bible, and then puts three wise men on the front. That's wrong. So I think this is an ironic cover, but that's beside the point. The point is, it's a critical question for us to face. Can we trust the Bible? How true is the Bible? And remember where we've come from so far. What we've affirmed already is that the Bible is a library of God's promises. It's a library of God's promises. Again, it's not a single book that one person sat down and wrote the whole thing. It's actually a collection of 66 books written by more than 40 authors, 40 authors at least, but even maybe more than that, over the course of 1,600 years. And each book tells a consistent story, just like a library has some level of consistency throughout the whole thing. The Bible is a library of God's promises. Then last week, we talked about how the Bible came together. That is to say that God decided to communicate. Then he inspired people to write it down. And then the church, the people of God in the Old Testament, the nation of Israel, recognized God's voice. And today we ask this very simple question, can I trust the Bible? If you're jotting notes down, if you're a note taker on paper or your phone or whatever, jot this question down because this is the critical question we're asking and endeavor to answer this morning. And this word trust, defined by the dictionary here, is a firm belief in the reliability, truth, ability, or strength of someone or something. It's confidence, belief, certainty, reliance. So let us ask this question in a number of different ways. Can we rely upon the Bible? Is it trustworthy? Can we place our confidence in it? Can we place our active trust in it? Is it strong enough for us to build our life upon? Is the Bible trustworthy? 
And if you've been with us for the last couple of weeks, we've been memorizing this verse together. And, and Paul writes this to his protege, Timothy, in his second letter. And he says, all scripture is God-breathed. We're going to come back to that word here in a minute. And use useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Now, if you're brand new with us, you don't know that we've been memorizing this verse for the last couple of weeks. But if you've been with us for the last couple of weeks, this should not bother you. All right? Say it with me now. Here we go. All what? Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and <laughs> training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. What we're going to focus on this morning is this word God breathe. In the original language, it's theonustos. It's theos meaning God and nustos meaning breath. It, all scripture, Paul says, is the breath of God. So let's put it this way. Right now, you're hearing the breath of Lucas Cooper. Uh, because what happens when I speak is that my lungs force air up over the top of my vocal cords. My vocal cords vibrate and make sounds. So in the same way, when Paul says that scripture is is God breathed, what he's saying is that the breath of God, so to speak, the wind of God, blew over the authors of Scripture, and they were inspired to write it down. These are God's words. This is his very message to us. And because we know from Hebrews that it is impossible for God to lie, People ask me sometimes, like, what, is there anything God can't do? Like, can he make a rock so big he can't move it? You ever heard that one before? Or how many angels can he fit on the head of a pin? Silly stuff like that. Here's one thing God can't do. He can't lie. Can't lie. It's impossible for God to lie. So if we are reading in the Bible God's very words, and it's impossible for God to lie, what we can affirm this morning is that the Bible is true. The Bible is true. Now, uh, theologians and scholars would call this the concept of, concept of inerrancy. That's the $2 theological term, meaning the Bible does not affirm anything that's contrary to fact. Or the Bible is absolutely true and inerrant in its original manuscripts uh, and all that it seeks to affirm. But what we're going to say, rather than the negative, that the Bible is in, inerrant, what we're going to say is the positive this morning, is that the Bible is true. Now, I want to speak to a couple of different people and let you know kind of in advance where we're headed this morning. First, I want to speak to the skeptic and to the cynic. Skeptical, like, ah, I'm not sure the Bible is true. Cynical is, I'm pretty sure it ain't true, or I'm absolutely positive it's not true, and I am kind of anti-Bible. Okay, I want to talk to you this morning. First thing I would tell you is this. I am under, I'm not delusional, okay? <laughs> so I know you're not going to leave here in like 30 minutes or whatever and go, oh my gosh, he convinced me the Bible's true. I know that. I know that. Here's what I hope. I hope that, that what we talk about this morning might inspire you to do some really rigorous research. The Bible's not afraid of your questions, and Google is your friend. So do your research when it comes to the authority, veracity, historicity, and authenticity of the Scripture. That's, if, if you leave here and go, you know what, I'm going to do a little bit more work. I'm going to do a little bit more reading. Then that, I would count that as a success. Uh, for those of you who are Jesus followers, and there are times when you doubt, first thing I would tell you is that God loves doubters. <laughs> He's with you in your doubt. He walks with you in your doubt. Even Jesus does miracles to address doubt. People come alongside Jesus and say, I believe, help my unbelief. Jesus helps. Jesus helps. So my hope for you is that you'd walk away and go, you know what? I still doubt, but maybe I doubt a little bit less. Yeah, I think the, I think the Bible is trustworthy. 
And this final group of people that I want to talk to are, and, and you're going to have to buckle up because I'm going to say some offensive stuff this morning. Here's the first, okay? Sometimes Christians, especially Christians who have been Christians for a long time, have completely checked their brain out at the door. They have. And they say stuff like, God said it, I believe it, that settles it. Have you ever heard anybody say that before? God said it, I believe it, that settles it. And, and it's a statement of faith. It's a statement of total trust in who God is and what he says is true. And I love it. I absolutely love it. Except, except, sometimes people use it as a smokescreen, don't they? It's like they really don't believe it, or they really don't want to do the work, or they really aren't intellectually curious or intellectually honest. They don't want to look into science. They don't want to look into history. They're too scared to ask the Bible difficult questions, so they say stuff like, God said it, I believe it, that settles it. And what I want you to know, if that's you, and you've used it as a smokescreen, it's a statement of absolute blind faith, and you haven't engaged your brain, here's what I want you to know, that the Bible says so is no longer an acceptable answer in our culture. It really isn't. If you just tell somebody, well, here's what's true. Why do you know it's true? Because the Bible says so. It's not an acceptable answer. And Peter would tell you this. Always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason. See, our faith, faith is a reasonable faith. It's a thought-through faith. It's not a blind faith. We have reasons for our faith. And Peter says, always be prepared to give an answer. And because the Bible said so is no longer an acceptable answer in our culture, we've got to figure out other ways to defend the authenticity and the veracity of the scriptures. There's just no other way around it. So engage your brain this morning as we talk through four common objections to the authenticity and the trustworthiness of the scripture. We're just going to go through four, and I'm going to do my best to address each one, unpack each one, and give you reasons why those objections don't hold water. Now understand that I can't give you all the examples this morning. I can't argue against these thoroughly. There are books and volumes written on this stuff, and you can go read some of those things. If you want recommendations, come to me. I will give you recommendations. But this morning, we're just going to scratch the surface on four common objections. The first one is this, is that the texts are inaccurate. The texts are inaccurate. We've been quoting Richard Dawkins, who's a face of the modern atheist movement, and he talks about the Bible being a chaotically cobbled together anthology of disjointed documents that have been revised and edited and changed over time. Dan Brown, who wrote The Da Vinci Code, actually wrote this. He says that the Bible and the stories therein are nothing but old stories fabricated by man and exaggerated over time. So here's what Dan Brown is saying, that Jesus probably didn't feed 5,000 people, actually, because they just counted men back then. It was probably closer to 12,000, but that's beside the point. He didn't feed 5,000. He probably fed like 12. And then it was written down and passed along, and then it became 90, and then it became 900, and then it became 2,500, and then it became 5,000. It got exaggerated over time. So here's our first question. Are the texts we have and the manuscripts we have, are they accurate? So here's my answer. Yes, absolutely they are, and here are the reasons. First, because of scribal tradition. Now, scribes in Old Testament Israel got paid a lot of money. This was a really good job. You had to go to school for a long time to learn how to be a scribe. And all scribes did was they took copies of the Old Testament, and they made copies onto different you know, parchment, papyrus, and things like that. Because they didn't have big printing presses, and they didn't have floppy disks, and they didn't have thumb drives, and they didn't have email. So they had to copy it word for word, except scribes didn't copy word for word. They copied letter for letter. Copied the pages of the Old Testament books that they had. 
And the scribes knew how many characters were in each book. So they would say, okay, in Genesis, there's 5,492 characters. And so at the end of copying Genesis, letter for letter, they would go, 5,493 characters are on mine. It's supposed to be 5,492. So I got to go back and figure out which character I messed up. No, they didn't, actually. They just destroyed that scroll and started again. Scribes knew what the middle letter of each text was. So they would find that middle character and they would count forward from the middle character to make sure that the letters matched and backward from the middle character to make sure that the letters matched. The scribal tradition is so rich and so authentic that we know those texts have been copied accurately. Now, you might say to me, okay, Luke, I get that, but The earliest text we have of the Old Testament, because we don't have any original manuscripts of the Old Testament. Does everybody get that? We don't have any original. Like, you know, at the end of Genesis, it doesn't say, love Moses. You know, that's not what happens, okay? So we have copies of copies of copies. And until recently, the most recent copy we had of the Old Testament was from the 9th century A.D. That's quite a long time, isn't it? That's quite a long time. See, but that's where the Dead Sea Scrolls come into play because the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered in the 20th century and there were copies of every Old Testament book except for Esther in the Dead Sea Scrolls. And the Dead Sea Scrolls date from the first century, 900 years before our earliest copy up to that point. Oh no, are they going to match? Are they going to match 50%, 60%, 70%? Are those two things going to match? Because the Dead Sea Scrolls, because they're 900 years old, Older are far more authentic than our most recent copy at ninth, in the 9th century A.D. You want to guess how much percent they matched? 99.5. And the 0.5% were just spellings of names. That was it. I've got a friend that refuses to spell my name L-U-K-E. She always spells it L-U-C. L-U-C. I'm like, well, I'm not French. I'm not Jean-Luc Picard. I don't like, that's Captain from Star Trek. These Star Trek fans, beside the point. Okay, point is, that's, that's the only differences in, from the Dead Sea Scrolls and the copies of the Old Testament we have. And because of scribal tradition and because of how accurately they were copied, we know that the Bible we have now was the Bible we had then. So let's talk about the New Testament. Let's talk about the New Testament. Stick with me here because I'm going to move fast as if I'm not moving fast already. New Testament, and, and I want to take, take a look at some other texts of antiquity, other manuscripts that we have of other authors that wrote around the time that the New Testament was written. They're up here on the screen. People like Homer, Herodotus, Sophocles. You know these names. Plato, Caesar, Tacitus, Pliny the Elder, who we've quoted in here. And then N.T. down at the bottom is not N.T. right. It's New Testament. And these These people wrote in these dates, 800 B.C., 400 B.C., 100 A.D. That's when they were writing, and so they're kind of categorized as texts of antiquity, just as the New Testament is. And so what we have for these guys is not original manuscripts, same as the Bible. What we have is copies of copies. So what I want to do is take a look at the gap between when those things were written, which is these dates here, and the earliest manuscript we have. Are you ready? Here's the gap. 400 years, almost 1,400 years between when he wrote and what we actually have in terms of a manuscript. Copied and copied and copied and copied and copied over 1,400 years. 1,300 years, 950, 400. How about the New Testament? Ready? 40. From the time it was written to the earliest manuscript we have, the gap is only 40 years. 
So the second test of authenticity that scholars, textual critics, would apply here is how many manuscripts do we have? How many partials of things? What, you know, what can we put together? How many manuscripts, MSS is manuscripts, how many manuscripts do we have? So for Homer, Herodotus, Sophocles, Plato, this is how many manuscripts we have. 100, 233. Can you believe this? You're reading Herodotus in school. We only have 109 manuscripts, and the gap is 1,350 years. How about the New Testament? 1,000, 2,000, 3,000? How about 5,795 manuscripts? That's just the Greek. If you include the Latin, it's over 24,000. Liberal atheist scholars that reject the claims of the Bible would say that the Bible is unsurpassed in terms of the manuscripts we have and the authenticity of the manuscripts we have. In other words, here's what we're affirming is that the Bible we have is the Bible that was. It hasn't been translated and exaggerated and revised and edited over time as per Dawkins or as per Dan Brown. These texts are accurate to the original, so we know that the claims that they're making are the claims that they made originally. They haven't been warped. Second objection is this. The Bible is not historically accurate. The Bible is not historically accurate. So I want to start here when we talk about the historicity of Scripture. I want to start here and say that the Bible is not a history book, but it is historical. The Bible is not a history book, but it is historical. And the reason why I say that, and I'm not just playing with words here and semantics here, but sometimes we read the Bible as if it's a history book or as if it's a science book or as if it's a newspaper and we're looking for things uh, in the scripture or we're looking for the Bible to report things to us that the Bible doesn't intend to report or the Bible doesn't intend to tell us. However... The Bible stands alone as a spiritual text because so many other spiritual texts will show you the way to enlightenment and they'll tell you about spirituality and how to grow as a person and so, so many of those other things. But the Bible insists that God entered in to a specific time and place in history. Uh, take a look at Luke, the beginning of Luke's gospel in chapter 2. Look how much pain Luke goes through to tell us that God entered into a specific time and place in history. He says, in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered to his own town. Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. Now, who, who did? When, when was this? Who was, who was governor? I mean, he tells us specifically when and where this happened. You know, as time went on, more and more people wrote gospels that are not in your Bible that account for Scripture. And or they, they, they say that they're an account of the life of Jesus. And they don't include so many geographical details and historical details. In fact, in the second century, the Gospel of Philip and the Gospel of Thomas have only two names of cities. Only two. They name only two cities in their Gospels. The third and fourth century Gospels that purport to be Gospels don't name any cities at all. See, that's what happens over time when legends develop is you don't include as much historical and geographical detail. Why? Because you don't know it, because you've forgotten about it. But Luke does. He includes all this geographical detail. In fact, throughout Luke and Acts, Luke names over 60 cities, 39 countries, and 9 islands. All of which we know, by the way. All of which we've discovered. All of which you can visit with your families if you want to spend a whole lot of money. 
<laughs> I mean, the Bible is historically accurate. Let me give you a couple, bit, a couple more examples. Archaeology. We didn't think the Pool of Siloam existed, although Scripture names it. It does exist. We found it. Didn't think there were a place with uh, a porch with five colonnades, although John names it. Now, archaeologists have found a porch with five colonnades in Jerusalem. Uh, we didn't think that Solomon had horses, although the Bible claims he had horses, because people would say, you know what, they didn't have horses in that time, in that place, there were no horses there. Except when archaeologists were excavating the Valley of Megiddo, where Solomon had a palace in some places, he, 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 uh, the archaeologists discovered thousands of stalls built for what? Horses, Right? Uh, the Hittites, people didn't think this group of people existed, although the scripture names it. And now we've found evidence that the Hittites existed. This is all throughout the Old Testament, example after example after example, and evidence after evidence after evidence that history affirms the veracity of the scriptures. Let's move on to the gospel, because I think this one is absolutely fascinating. Of the four gospels, only one was written within the context that it reports, or within the context and country that it talks about. That's Matthew. It was written within Judea. Uh, Mark's gospel was written in Rome. Luke's gospel was written in Antioch, possibly Rome. And John's gospel was written in Ephesus. In other words, three of the four gospels were written outside of the land that the events of the gospels take place within. Are you with me so far? Okay, so what we would ask those gospels is, how do you know about the botany? in that land? How do you know about the agriculture in that land that you're writing about? You're writing outside of that place. How do you know about this stuff? How do you know about the culture? How do you know about the people groups? It would be like you're writing about Toronto, but living in Vancouver. Like you don't know all the culture here. You'd have to be around here just a little bit more to know about it. But in 2003, there was a study released, and I, I owe Amy Or Ewing here in, in a sermon that I listened to this week. Amy Or Ewing was supposed to be here preaching last week and, and uh, became sick. We're trying to get her rescheduled. But Amy Or Ewing points out this research that came out in 2003, and this is absolutely fascinating to me. It came out in 2003 of a guy who did extensive research of all the parchments and all the pieces of manuscripts that we can find, and he came up with the top 100 most popular names of Jewish boys living in first century Palestine. Does that sound like riveting research to read, by the way? Like, who does this stuff? All right, but in 2003, that was released. And it matters to us because I want to share with you the seven most popular Jewish male names of young Jewish boys that were living in Palestine during the first century. They're up here on the screen. Simon, Joseph, Lazarus, Judas, John, Jesus, and Ananias. Does that sound familiar at all? They're all in the Gospels. So what this research concluded is after all the research that we've done, that 40% of the boys were named one of those top 10. 40%. In the New Testament, the four Gospels, if we collect all the male names, 41% are named one of those top 10. And you may think to yourself, well, they would have known that because if they were living in Ephesus and writing a Gospel, or if they were living in Rome and writing a Gospel, the names would have been pretty similar. Let's take a look at Jewish male names for boys living in Egypt at the time. They're up here on the screen. Eleazar, Sabbateus, Joseph, Docephus, Pappas, Ptolemaeus, and Samuel. Next parent-child dedication. I want a Docephus real bad. Um, 
The reason I show you this is because the authors of the scripture were living in places where those names would not have been as popular, the names from Judea, first century Palestine, but they knew those names and they knew them very well. Why? Because that's where they were living. It points to the authenticity and veracity of the scripture, or that's where they had come from, and that's where the events of the gospels took place. This is the one that blew my mind. This is crazy. Has anybody ever read the list of the, the apostles when they named the apostles? In, in Matthew, Mark, uh, Luke, or sorry, in the Gospels, they name the apostles one by one. And some of them have caveats, right? Simon, who's also called Peter, and some it's just like Bartholomew, and there's no caveat. This is the reason why. Look up here on the screen. It's Matthew 10. The names of the 12 apostles are these. First, Simon, who's called Peter. Andrew, his brother. James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother. Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas, and Matthew, the tax collector. James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus. Simon the Zealot and Judas Iscariot who betrayed him. See, some have caveats and some don't. Are you with me? Some have qualifiers and some don't. Well, look up here on the screen. The names of the 12 apostles are these. First, Simon, most popular name in first century Palestine for Jewish boys. Therefore, he needs a qualifier who is called Peter. And Andrew, 14th most popular, his brother, qualifier. James, 11th most popular, he needs a qualifier. The son of Zebedee and John, his brother, Fifth most popular, go back. Fifth most popular, he needs a qualifier. Next, Philip, 51st most popular name, doesn't need a qualifier. Not a lot of Phillips. Bartholomew, 50th, doesn't need a qualifier. Not a lot of Bartholomews, even now. Thomas, doesn't even make the top 100. So Matthew doesn't feel the need to include a qualifier, right? And Matthew, the tax collector, ninth most popular. James, 11 most popular, the son of Alphaeus qualifier. Thaddeus, 39th most popular, no qualifier. Simon the Zealot, you see the, word, the name Simon all throughout the scripture. Simon the Tanner, Simon the Cyrene, always with a qualifier because there were so many Simons, you had to have a qualifier. And Judas Iscariot, uh, fourth most popular back then, not nearly as popular now, you might expect, who betrayed him. In other words, what I'm telling you is that the authors of the scripture lived, breathed, worked, and played within the context context of where those events of the gospels took place moved outside of those contexts and wrote about them hence they have such a working knowledge and intimate knowledge of the culture the botany the geography the food the the norms of behavior and the cultural mores and they're included there in the four gospels that's not included in fantasy in other words what we're saying is that history affirms and illuminates scripture it tells us that scripture is true and history helps us understand the Bible more and more and more. Here's the second, or sorry, the third objection is that it's not scientifically accurate. It's not scientifically accurate. So I'll tell you a couple things. Uh, I'm not going to get super into all the biblical texts that defend the science of the Bible this morning, okay? What I'm going to do is try to... Um, Try to hold back my intensity a little bit here. Because this one really grates my cheese, boy. It does. It really, really does. So buckle up. I might say some more offensive stuff. But remember, I'm an equal opportunity offender. I'm going to try to offend everybody, all right? So here's the deal. First, again, the Bible is not a science book, but it is scientifically accurate. The Bible is not a science book. Don't read it like a science book. Specifically the creation account, one through three. If you're reading it like a science book, you're going to be up a creek without a paddle and you're going to miss God's point. 
Let's do that. How about let's do that? Let's talk about Genesis 1 through 3 and the creation account. Because this is the one that everybody argues about. Have you ever heard anybody argue about how God created the world, how old the world is, how long it took him to create the world? Raise your hand if you ever heard anybody argue about that. One, two, three, go. Okay, good. Yeah, argue about that. Everybody loves to argue about that. So let my voice be heard. Ready? Here's the deal. This is why it always grated my teeth. Because every time I got into a conversation about this, what I felt like was that there was a group of people on this side that were theist, that, that is, they believed in God, creationist, that, believes they, that means they believe that God created the world, ex nihilo, that is Latin, out of nothing, and that the earth was young. The reason why they believe the earth was young is because they add up the years and the genealogies in the Bible, and they say that the earth is X number of years old, anywhere between 4,000 and 15,000 years old, okay? That's this group of people, theist, creationist, and young earth, okay? Then, over here, way over on this other side was another group of people, atheistic, no God, evolutionary theorists, that means they subscribe to evolution, and the earth is very, very old, like billions of years old. And these two people just yelled at each other about this thing. And I'm in the middle going, okay, why? this feels uncomfortable to me because I think some of what you're saying is right. Some of what you're saying is kooky. Some of what you're saying is right. Some of what you're saying is kooky. And I never knew why it seemed like only that camp and that camp existed. Here's the deal. About six or seven years ago when I was in seminary, I was doing some research and I found out why it feels like only that camp and that camp exists and nobody else is intellectually honest and intellectually curious and actually having a conversation with the Bible and science, which work together, by the way. That's where I'm headed, okay? And do you want to know why? I'm going to walk you through the history of why it feels like there's only those two falsely bifurcated camps. Are you ready? Here we go. First thing that happened was in the late 19th century, Charles Darwin released a book called The Origin of the Species. Have you heard of The Origin of the Species? Okay, this is the first we started to hear of evolutionary theory. Please don't think, okay, you know, we evolved from monkeys, like Charles Darwin didn't even argue that, by the way. But evolutionary theory came on the radar at the end of the 19th century. And it became more and more popular, more and more people got to know it. So at the beginning of the 20th century, a group of Christians decided that they should respond to it and talk about the origin of the species because a lot of people were reading it. So they released a, a set of papers called the fundamentalist papers. That's where we get the term fundamentalism or fundamentalist Christianity from. One of those individuals who began to respond to evolutionary theory was a man named B.B. Warfield. B.B. Warfield was the pr uh, president of Princeton Theological Seminary long before it was liberal when it was one of the premier conservative uh, seminaries in the world. He was the president of that seminary. And we owe B.B. Warfield a great debt because the only reason we still believe, not the only reason, but one of the primary reasons we still believe in the inerrancy of scripture is because at the advent of the technological revolution, scientific revolution, industrial revolution, B.B. Warfield argued vehemently, adamantly for the inerrancy of scripture, saying the Bible is true in everything, science, history, spirituality, everything. And B.B. Warfield, check it, check his response to Darwin and evolutionary theory. This was B.B. Warfield, go back one. B.B. Warfield's response was this. First of all, evolutionary theory is just a theory right now. Let's just do that. Second, if it's proven to be true, the Bible remains intact. It does not undermine the authority of the scripture 
Why? Because what God's after in Genesis chapters 1 through 3 is not to tell you how long it took him, but why he created and what he created. And we owe B.B. Warfield a great deal of debt because he argued for and, and, and maintained the veracity, authenticity, and inerrancy of the scripture. And yet that was his response to evolutionary theory. Fast forward another number of years to the Scopes Monkey Trial. Here's what happened in the United States. I said there was an argument about uh, what we should teach in school. Should we teach theistic young earth creationism? Or should we teach atheistic old earth evolutionary theory? And it went to trial, went to the Supreme Court actually. And in order to win that trial, the lawyers on each side went as far this way as they could and as far that way as they could. Just a side note, by the way, that's how you get elected to office in the U.S. too. <laughs> you go as far left as you could possibly go or as far right as you could possibly go. The way you get elected here is you run towards the middle. But this, in the United States, this is how you win a trial. As you go as far left as you could possibly go or as far right as you could possibly go. And that's what they did. And what happened was, after the Scopes Monkey Trial, pretty much everybody in the United States, and I hate to tell you that that U.S. culture creeps in here too, okay? I'll be the bearer of bad tidings. But everybody in the United States thought there were two camps. Atheist, evolutionary theory, old earth, or, or creation, theistic Young Earth, and that's it. Those are my only options, and that's simply not true. Mark Driscoll is a pastor and a theologian and a scholar. He uh, planted a church near my home, and my old home in Phoenix. Uh, Mark Driscoll, if you know anything about him, does not lack for opinions. He's an opinionated guy. He will tell you what he thinks. He wrote a book called Doctrine, What Christians Should Believe. It's a newer book. And in that book, he says there are five, at least five, readings of Genesis 1 through 3 that fall within the realm of orthodoxy. Historic creationism is one of them. Gap theory, day-age theory, I don't have time to explain all of them. In other words, what Driscoll is saying is stop the disunity, stop the factions, stop the arguing about this garbage in Christianity. Christian circles. These are not the only two options. There are others. Engage your brain because science, when we discover things and learn things, helps us to see the scripture in a different light and help us, helps us to interpret the scripture in the right way so that we hear what God is saying and we don't make up things that he's not intending to say. I'll give you one example and we'll keep going. A guy named Galileo. Have you heard of Galileo? Okay, around the 16th century, 15th, 16th century, started to say this crazy thing that the earth was not the center of the universe. Nutso. I mean, so nutso that the church was like, shut up. Even Martin Luther, who was awesome, right? Reformer, was like, Galileo, you're nutso, buddy. And Galileo kept saying, no, it's not a geocentric universe. It's a heliocentric universe. The sun is the center of the universe. Lo and behold, the, not the center of the universe, the, the earth orbits around the sun. We live in a heliocentric world, not in a geocentric world. And lo and behold, the earth orbits around the sun, not the sun orbiting around the earth, right? And because of Galileo and because of his scientific discovery, by the way, Jesus follower, by the way, because of him, we see the scripture in a new light and we read the scripture in a way that science and scripture work together to help us discern truth and understand God even more. In other words, science affirms and illuminates scripture. 
and we act like there's really a fight, and we act like there are only two camps, and people in those camps a lot of times haven't done the rigorous research, not always, not always, but a lot of times. The reality is, as Christians, we don't need to be afraid of science. Did you know that? Did you know that? I mean, science helps us. History helps us to understand God more and more and interpret the scripture. One of my favorite conservative theologians, by the way, young earth creationist, uh, went to Oxford University. He's a PhD. He's written books all over the place and published all over the place and speaks all over the place. A guy named Wayne Grudem wrote this, and he's talking about creation now. He says, we should never fear, but always welcome any new facts that may be discovered in any legitimate area of human research or study. See, the science continues to affirm scripture. I don't have time to give you all the examples why, but here's what I would do. Go do your own research. Go do your own research. And if you're gonna dig your heels in and say, God said it, I believe it, that settles it. I admire that faith, but I would tell you that the scripture is not afraid and will answer those questions and that science and scripture work together. Here's the fourth objection to the veracity and authenticity of the scripture. It's internally inconsistent. There are, uh, there are things in the scripture that conflict and contradict one another. And we don't have time to answer this one today, but be back here in two weeks, and we will. Next week, a guy named Dwayne Klein is going to be here and talk about what Jesus said about the scripture. So here's the last thing I want to say, and then, and then we're going to be done. I want to talk really briefly to the skeptics and the cynics. For those that came in here and, they, you know, maybe somebody drug you here, maybe here, you're here to, like, impress your mom on Mother's Day. That's great. I think you should have done that. That's awesome. Maybe you're here for a free brunch. Uh, if that's true, um, where are you going? Because I'd like to join you. Um, uh, and, and, and like I said, I know I'm not going to convince you. Uh, but I want to say something to you that might be a little bit difficult. It might be a little bit um, challenging to face. And so I want to say it with a lot of grace and just a, a, a lot of um, just humility. Uh, and, and I'm going to tell you a story about my daughter so it feels a little softer. Okay, so yesterday we were on a plane coming home from uh, Florida, my, my wife and my daughter and I. And um, went down and saw my daughter's birth parents and, and spent a little time on vacation, which was great. So uh, we're on the plane, and I, like, I don't know how to say this politely, but... You ever been on a plane where someone keeps cutting one loose? Breaking wind? Someone is, their, their tummy is feeling a little grumbly. You know what I mean? Like you ever been on one of those planes? And like every now and then you're just getting a whiff of something. And you're like, man, oh man, like, like lay off the Indian food. And like this is this crazy. Like it, have you ever, you ever been on one of those planes? Okay, I was on that plane yesterday. And as I was holding my three-and-a-half-year-old daughter, she, uh, <laughs> she, she, I kid you not, this is exactly what happened. She went like this. <laughs> said, you okay, babe? And she goes, Daddy, what's that kind of smell? <laughs> and I thought, oh, no, here we go. Like, this is going bad quickly. I said, well, babe, I think somebody's tooting. And she goes, it's not me. <laughs> and I said, well, I didn't say it was you. I just said somebody's tooting. And she said, uh, she said, well, who's tooting? Like loud. Like loud. Who's tooting? Someone's tooting. Who's tooting around here? I'm going, Kaya, yeah, you got to land the plane, girl. Like people don't like to be called out if they're breaking wind on a plane, okay? 
This is what I lived through yesterday, all right, to be here. So here's the thing. It, this next statement might feel equally uncomfortable, okay? If you were the one cutting wind on the plane and someone called you out, this next statement might feel equally uncomfortable, but I tell you a story about my cute kid. I wish she was here to tell you this because she's so cute, like you, you wouldn't, you know, you wouldn't, it wouldn't feel offensive to you. But here's the reason why I think so many people question uh, the trustworthiness of the scripture is, is because they don't want it to be true. I know it's hard. I know that's hard. They don't want accountability. They don't want authority. They don't want somebody else to have lordship over their life. And so they say it's not historically accurate. It's not scientifically accurate. The texts have been exaggerated and translated over time. Some of those things, if that's really a reason for not trusting the scripture, that's, that's okay. That's okay. I'm not saying that that's bad or wrong or whatever. I'm, I disagree. But I would encourage you to do your own research. And, and here's what I encourage you to do. See if maybe you can discover the reason behind the reason. When you say you don't trust the Bible, is it really because you feel it's internally inconsistent? Really? Or is it because you just don't want it to be true? Like I said, I know that's challenging. I took the opportunity to do that this morning. And like I said, I, I presume upon your grace um, for bringing that uh, for your consideration today. As we conclude, the band's going to come back up and lead us in one more song of worship. But before we do that, let's say it together one more time. Here we go. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be equipped for every good work. Look out. Let's stand together and sing.